Hey, it's Bartender Journey, podcast number 63. My name is Vince, and we're the podcast that talks all about bartending, whether it's how to be a better bartender or uh, education uh, interviews with people that are in the business of making spirits or making cocktails or running bars or whatever it is. Vanna was not in the studio with me today, but I'm going to talk a little bit first, and then I'm going to play an interview that I did a while ago with Patrick Garrett, who's an expert on bourbon. He's got a lot of great knowledge. I I find it fascinating, the... uh, learning more about the products that you're using and um, just getting to know what, what it is you're serving your guests. I want to talk a little bit about my tweet the other night from work. <laughs> and a couple other people commented on it. And uh, this couple come into the bar and the dude could not have looked more like Walter White or been trying hard to look like Walter White from Breaking Bad. And uh, he had the, the shaved head, the same glasses, the same beard. He, he looked just like him. It was like, uh, I, I didn't, I was staring at him. I didn't want to say anything like, do you know you look, <laughs> are you trying really hard to look like Walter White or is that an accident? But he, it couldn't be an accident. So anyway, this couple, they sat there for a long time. They had just moved into the neighborhood at, like two weeks ago and I was giving them all this information about where they can go and even other places they could go to drink and eat and uh, things to do. And uh, their tab was $24. He leaves $25 in the lease. I, I couldn't believe it. After talking to these people, giving them all kinds of advice and insight into the area, I definitely don't want to be one of those people that complains about their guests because I love my guests. And I, I hope that couple comes back. And I'm not going to say anything. You know, you just got to let it roll off your back. But uh, And there's plenty of those people out there that will uh, complain about their guests, you know, the angry waitress and all those Twitter things. And there's Tons of them. I don't want to be like that. But it was just something that happened to me, and I thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> it was uh, all I could do was laugh about it. I was in a bar recently, and I saw a bartender make a classic mistake, and I just wanted to share it with you. Hopefully, everybody listening knows this, but uh, if not, we can uh, you can learn. If if you do, we could just laugh about it. But uh, somebody ordered a vodka Collins, I think it was, and uh, so as you probably know, you, you should put that in a shaker. You got your ice, put your vodka, put your um, lemon juice and simple syrup or or um, sour mix out of the soda gun, which is how it's usually done <laughs> at most bars, uh, at the majority of bars anyway. And um, you want to shake that, strain that into a glass with ice, and then put club soda on top, your seltzer on top. This person put all that stuff in the, in the shaker and shook it with the soda, and that's a big mistake because the obvious reason, all the, you're going to shake all the carbonation right out of that drink. So that's uh, just something I wanted to share with you guys. And um, I've been the, also thinking a lot about the sub- subject of stirring lately. And uh, years ago, I used to cheat, not even <laughs> not even that long ago, to be honest with you. I used to cheat and turn the, the spoon upside down, and I found it a lot easier to stir the drink that way. And uh, that actually works really well. Um, but... If you want to get technical about it, the right way to do it is to stick your spoon, your bar spoon in the glass, and that rounded part of the spoon will touch the inside of the glass, and it should touch the glass uh, the whole time. It should stay in that position the entire time as you stir your drink. So it's kind of twirling around in your fingers, and uh, it takes a little bit of practice, but it's um, the proper way to do it, and it looks cool, and it does a great job. And uh, sometimes I'll stop. I'll stir it for a while one direction, stop, and turn it in the other direction uh, before I strain it into my cocktail glass or whatever it is. And if you really want to get fancy, some books will suggest you chill your mixing glass before you um, start doing that. That'll keep things a little colder. That's pretty uh, pretty fancy. If you've got enough room in your refrigerator, that's cool, but uh, I, I don't do that myself. But what I do do is try to keep my fingers off 
the glass as much as possible. I'll put my fingers at the very base of the glass so I'm not warming the um, liquid as I'm stirring it because that that definitely warms it up. Um, which brings me to another subject, martini glasses and wine glasses. Why do they have that stem? Do you know the reason? It's because you shouldn't be warming your drink by holding the, the bowl of the wine glass or the martini glass. You have that stem so you're not warming up your your liquid as you drink it. So uh, that's something not a lot of people know. And uh, I always look at wine drinkers and uh, when they get their hand wrapped around that whole glass, uh, I know they, they don't know the secret. <laughs> and then some people behold it by the stem and that, that's the proper way to do it. So, uh, you know, these are all little small tips, but um, things to think about that'll up your game. And while we're on the subject of shaking and stirring, how about we talk about shake versus stir? Now, a martini should be what? Stirred, not shaken, which is um, not everybody does it that way. But if you think about it, why did James Bond order his martini shaken, not stirred? That's because it's the exception to the rule. It's not the rule. And uh, the proper way is to stir your martini. And when you shake a drink, you're introducing air into the drink, which can make it um, cloudy. When you're pouring that drink into your mar- – when you're making a martini, it should be crystal clear and uh, you don't want tiny little ice particles in it. I was at an airport one time. This guy shook this thing. I may have told this story on the, on the podcast before. This guy shook this martini until it looked like um, a, a smoothie. You know, It was unbelievable. It was filled with tiny little ice particles and that was not the way it should be done. Shaking's good for drinks that have fruit juice in them, uh, certain – Cocktails may have eggs in them or cream, and those are good to shake. Um, a lot of times, if, if you do have uh, eggs or cream in your drink, it's good to dry shake it, which means shake it without ice. Then you add your ice and then shake it again. Um, so uh, a few little things on that. All right, I'll stop rambling on. Whenever I'm in the studio by myself, I feel like I'm just rambling on without anybody to talk to about the microphone. But you guys are listening, right? You just can't talk back. All right, let's listen to this interview with uh, Patrick Garrett, the bourbon man. Hey, it's Vince. Hey, Vince. Patrick, how are you? Patrick, thank you for coming on, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Wow. So you're in uh, St. Louis, is that correct? That's correct. All right. Let's first talk about your uh, blog. It's Bourbon Banter, which I forget how I discovered it exactly, but it's a great blog all about bourbon. So, uh, yeah, we were talking a little bit back and forth in email, and uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about bourbon and people, a segment of the people out there, even working in our business, who uh, don't quite understand exactly what bourbon is, what qualifies whiskey as a bourbon, and uh, so I'd love to hear uh, your take on that. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I think as a lot of people have learned is, you know, not all whiskeys are bourbons, right? um, but all bourbons are whiskey. So bourbon is a classification inside the whiskey family, which, you know, other whiskeys are Scotch or Irish or, or Japanese, um, Canadian whiskey, uh, even, you know, rye whiskeys, things of that nature. So bourbon's a, a member of the whiskey family. But to be bourbon, there's a couple things that have to happen. You know, first of all, it has to be made um, with at least 51% corn. And that's really kind of the big, the big thing there of, you know, if it's got to be 51% corn and then the remainder, you know, is usually rye. Um, or wheat as a secondary ingredient, um, and then a small percentage of barley. Right. Somebody explained it to me that uh, that comes that goes all the way back to the history of our country. Really, fifty-one percent corn. You know, corn goes back to the Pilgrims and the you know the whole history of America. So <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but so that's what somebody. Well, told I mean, you, you you know, the history of distilling is you distill with what you've got available. Right. Right. And you know, you look at you know everything from what's available to what do I have surplus of. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier to transport and trade liquor than it is the actual grain. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have surplus, you know, what's, what's going to get you not only the efficiency and, and also money. So a lot of it ties in there, but when you, when you have people come over and you're the abundant grain is corn, um, you're, you tend to, to go with that. Right. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you don't necessarily make a conscious decision one day and say, you know what, I'm going to use corn. <laughs> you know, you say, Hey, what do I got? And, yeah, and you make it. So that's, is, that's how that starts it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, after that, um, you know, it, when bourbon gets distilled, it can't be distilled to, to any higher than 160 proof mm-hmm. or 80, 80% alcohol by volume. <clears throat> and this is important because the higher you go in distilling it, the higher proof, at some point you're going to get out, all the flavors are going to be gone. So when you think about vodka and the fact that it's supposed to be a neutral grain spirit, no taste, no color, no smell, um, they're distilling off the, off the still up to about 190 proof. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit distinct different that they kind of back off that a little bit. It still leaves the essential flavors from the grain, which is you know part of the, uh, the, the deal with whiskeys. Um, and then when they put it into the barrels themselves, they have to uh, proof that down and they can't go in at higher than 125 proof or 62.5% alcohol by volume. So that's a key requirement as well. So come off the still at 160 proof into the barrel at 125 proof. And then when they take it out and they bottle it, it has to be at least 80 proof. So you'll have a lot of bourbons that are uh, one of the popular trends, which I happen to love, are barrel strength bourbons or Mm -hmm. cask strength. And these are when they take them out of the bottle and they don't add water. They don't proof them down and they come out 134 proof, 140 proof, um, big and bold and um, very tasty, but very hot as well. So it's not for everybody. But bourbon has to be in the bottle at least 80 proof. Right. And then the other key things are that it has to be aged in a brand new oak barrel that's been charred. So that's key as well. Um, so no used barrels for bourbon and, you know, all those used barrels got to go somewhere. So a lot of them go to, uh, over overseas, go to Scotland and are used in making scotch. They're used in wine production. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously big boom in people using them to age beer, uh-huh. um, other foods, making furniture out of it. So, um, I don't think anybody 15 years ago would have ever thought the used barrel business would be so lucrative, but it, it clearly has become that. Yeah, yeah, and then and even oh, in the new barrel business as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I live uh, I live just a little north of uh, Manhattan, and uh, have you heard of um, Hudson Whiskey? Sure. And uh, that so I went up and visited them, and uh, great people and really interesting operation. And uh, but they they realized there's going to be a demand now for barrels, so they invested in the barrel making business as well. So <laughs> smart guys. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously every piece of the production that you can have uh, some ownership in, not only can make you money but also helps protect you a little bit that's um, right that's right because that's right. as demand grows you know somebody could become a better customer than you if you if you don't watch your back too much other things for bourbon that are that are key um is you know it has to be uh made in the united states it has to be a distinct product of the u.s so common belief is that it has to be made in kentucky right um you know legally that's not true you know 95 percent of bourbon is made in kentucky and some people argue that only real bourbon is made in Kentucky, but legally it just has to be made inside the United States. Right. So that's a, a big myth for people to understand that you can, you know, you can get some really good bourbons um, that aren't made in Kentucky. Right. So, I mean, it's a good sign of quality when it says it is, but, um, you know, you don't bet money saying that it has to be there. That's right. for sure. Right. Yeah. I think that's a very big misconception. Uh, Absolutely. And, and then just, you know, back to that barrel thing, because I think this is another one. There's no requirement around how long it has to be in the barrel Mm. and this is an interesting one because you know a lot of people like well i like old bourbons or people like i like a six-year-old bourbon um to be called a bourbon it's just got to be in the barrel for 
it could be in there for three minutes and you can call it a bourbon. It won't be a very good bourbon in most people's uh, opinion, but right. it can be called bourbon. So you have a lot of places, you know, Hudson's uh, one of them, who have some really young bourbons and you yeah. know, they age them, you know, from anywhere from six months to two years. But they and, use the you know, um, they use the small casks with which uh, apparently makes it age a little a little quicker or take sure. on take on the um, not that it ages quicker but it takes on the characteristics of the barrel quicker because it's a smaller barrel right absolutely and you know they have distinct flavors they're di- they're different and I think you know and one of the exciting things about bourbon that keeps me going in it is the fact that they're all different so someone can make one and they age it for two years and you know maybe Jim Beam or Wild Turkey doesn't want to put one out that young but someone else does and it gives you a completely different flavor profile so there's it just kind of opens up your options for experimenting and finding what you like yeah yeah well well I was up there at um, Tuttle Hill or the Hudson distillery mm-hmm. uh, you could actually buy a bourbon making kit and what that is is uh, their corn whiskey which is the clear whiskey that as it comes off the still on on unflavored not unflavored but uh uncolored and um totally clear and you buy a little barrel it's a one liter barrel and uh so i put my corn whiskey in there and it turns into bourbon because it's in the barrel as you said so it's fun because i can try it um as it ages at the the longer it stays in the barrel obviously the the taste change so it's a kind of a fun little experiment i take a little taste every uh you know a couple times a week so that's fun very cool. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize that all distilled spirits come off the still clear, and the, where's the color come from? The barrel, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, and that's why you know when you get, you know, like the Hudson Baby Bourbon is very light in color, right? But then you get something like a Elijah Craig eighteen or even Elijah Craig twenty one, and they're so much darker, and right. absolutely that that comes from the wood because they inside that barrel when they char it. You know, they create that external char, but as that char kind of recedes into the wood, um, they create sort of a caramelized layer that they refer to as the red line. Mm. And what happens is in the in the the rack houses where the barrels are stored, um, and this is you know Kentucky. One of the reasons why Kentucky is a hotbed is the the climate change there is so good because what happens is in the, the summer when it gets hot. Uh, the the liquor in the barrel expands and it pushes into the wood and it goes through that 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 charred layer into that red line and it starts picking up the flavors of that caramelized layer of wood mm. and then in the winter it contracts and it, so it passes back out so imagine over twelve seasons of in and out in and out in and out going through that you pick up a lot of flavors you pick up a lot of complexity and that's really kind of the, the finesse and the art of what goes into bourbon mm. and that's what makes it so so unique and you know what's interesting is once those barrels are used and they get shipped overseas and let's say they get used for scotch right. um, that barrel doesn't have quite the upfront charge mm-hmm. um, that it did when it was first put out so it it's more gentle in the aging so you know they've done experiments where actually I think it was Jim Beam they took Jim Beam barrel bourbon I'm sorry, barrels of bourbon and sent them to Scotland and, and one of their distilleries over there brought scotch over to Kentucky. And the idea was mm-hmm. how would they age differently? And mm-hmm. I think it was something like for every year of aging in the U- United States, um, it's equivalent to about three to three to four years of aging in, in Scotland because no kidding. The, the climate over there is so much milder mm-hmm. um, and it's cooler. So you don't get those strong shifts. So it takes longer to get the same sort of experience out of the wood, plus they tend to use all use barrels, so um, they don't get that up. You know, it's not as intense up front, and the the back and forth and the heat and the extremities aren't as much, so it takes a longer time to age. So if you have a twelve year old bourbon, 
you know, it, this is overly simplified, but you could argue that that's got about the same aging experience as a 36 year old scotch. Hmm. You know, it's not exact. So, you right. know, I know some, <laughs> some, some, some of my, uh, whiskey geek friends might take me to point on that, but it gives you an idea of the difference in aging. That's, you know, why you don't see a lot of 35 year old bourbons just because it, it's too much. It gets too woody. It, right. You know, rarely do you get one that tastes that good and rarely do you get one that has enough liquor left in the barrel after that long of time to produce uh, a bottling. Right, right. Well, they uh, and so a little bit evaporates as time goes on, right? It's called yeah. the angel share. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, cool. Uh, and um, so I see on your bio that you spent some time in Japan learning about Japanese <laughs> drinking culture. I really am so curious about that. <laughs> yeah, my parent, my parents didn't know that was the reason. So, but, you know, but we're okay now. The cat's out of the bag. Right. <laughs> So what is, tell me a little bit about Japanese drinking culture. (laughs) Sure. So I went over there when I was 18, uh, right out of high school as an exchange student. And, you know, I I grew up amazingly, you know, I'm kind of a, one of those interesting ones that grew up in high school. I had a ton of friends, you know, would go to tons of parties, but none of us really drank. So a drinking neophyte, if you will. So I went over to Japan and, you know, they, they send you over as part of the Rotary Exchange. They say, now don't drink if it's illegal and don't get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Well, I get to Japan and... Immediately, all these men who are in the rotary and in, in senior positions, when they take you out, it, it's all about drinking, right? Uh-huh. Um, it was all about drinking and all about smoking cigarettes. So I focused on, on the, the drinking portion of it. And, you know, everywhere you went, they were giving giving you drinks. And, you know, at this time, I'm 18, so I think the drinking age there was 20. Um, but, you know, it's much more loosely defined there. You know, most people aren't driving, so there's not concerns around that. Mm. And it just, it's just different. So. Everywhere would go, they would, they would do this. And so you, you kind of got into this ritual where you would go to an event and get there. There'd be a what looked like a highball glass, but it was a beer glass. And so you'd have that there, and then there'd be a glass there for whiskey and water, which was which was huge. You might have a, a sake glass. You know, I had a couple experiences where we would go to events, and you know, one in particular, we were we were, was actually the second time I went to Japan for college, and we were taking a, a driving tour up in Hokkaido with uh, the judo teacher from the college and his brother was surname is Sato and his brother was the Olympic coach for years for judo. So he's his, as his brother, he's fairly well known and respected. So we're going through this town and we stop in this one. He knows the mayor and the mayor's like, okay, you got six Americans with you and some, some teachers. Let's, let's have a party. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, cause they're very gracious, very welcoming. So we go to this building that's clearly set up for just this and down the, down the room in the middle of the table is this giant grill table. And so, we're, which means the center of the table are all hot grills. All right, think okay. of a griddle in front of you. Okay. You've got a little bit of lip to it where you get your food, and they start bringing all this food, and you cook it in front of yourself, and they eat it over rice. Well, we had a pint glass, then we had a wine glass, <laughs> then we had sake glasses, and they keep filling them. And in Japan, if a glass is empty, you're supposed to fill it for the person that you're by. So a glass should. So if you actually want to stop drinking, you leave your glass full. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., you drain it and you might turn it over, something like that. But there, if you empty it, they will fill it. So the mayor decided after we ate dinner, he started going around and he stopped at each one of us at the table and would do a drink with us. And we either had to drink a full glass of beer or a full glass of wine <laughs> or like two shots of sake. And he wouldn't move on to the next person until you did that. <laughs> You know, it's just a, a strong part of the culture. Um, it's a way to blow off steam. I mean, colleagues go after work. They get a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of fun as well. But, it, you know, the funny thing is I'm so into whiskey and bourbon now. But when I was there, I wouldn't I wouldn't touch it. Whiskey and water was a huge part of what, you know, they drink. Um, but I, it wasn't something I was in at the time. So it would be kind of interesting to go back now 
and have that same experience. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, Japanese uh, whiskey is, is its own animal, which I really don't know anything about, honestly. But uh, that's that's a whole other thing to explore, I suppose, someday. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So, um, do you have any particular brands that you uh, that you like when it comes to bourbons? You know, both on the high end and the bargain end. Sure. No, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I think I. I think the easy answer would be, and you know, I'll give it just because I'll get it out the thing, but it's not necessarily my answer. I mean, everybody clamors for the Pappy Van Winkles of the world, and you know, they're they're good bourbons, they're excellent bourbons. I think everybody should try them, but um, it's just not worth the fight right now. I yeah, mean, we're in we're in the fall release season; they're coming out, um, and you know, it's 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 the unicorn, right? And, yeah. yeah. Um, I've just, you know, I've got a lot of friends and I'm in parts of lots of groups around where people are always hunting and dusty hunting as they call it. And they're getting bottles and they're trading. And, um, and I think that's great that those, those outlets exist. I just don't have the, the, the energy to do it. And I think there's enough fantastic bourbon out there that is a little more accessible that uh, people should, should try. So to that point, I mean, at the low end, um, you know, I've long enjoyed things like Elmer T. Lee. Um, which, you know, was named after Elmer T. Lee, who was the creator of Blanton Single Barrel. Okay. Uh, Elmer, unfortunately, just passed away um, recently. Um, but his bourbon is, you know, the good news is this bourbon is going to live on because there was a question because in his contract when they created it and named it after him, he had the rights to, to sample everything, to mm. taste everything that they bottled. Mm. And with his passing, the question was, well, will they still do it? Um, confirmation just came out from Buffalo Trace that they're going to continue, which is great. But that's a bourbon that's very, you know, I mean, two years ago you were buying it for twenty-two dollars a bottle. It's about twenty-six where I live, um, and the price has gone up a little bit. But it's a great, it's a great uh, bourbon. It's the same mash bill as Blanton's at about half the cost. So that's that's a good low cost go-to. I'm also a big fan of the Weller line of bourbons out of Buffalo Trace. That that's uh, weeded bourbons. Mm-hmm. So they have their antique Weller. Which is 107 proof, which is really good, and that's you know once again under the 25 dollar price point. 12 year Weller is also excellent. Um, it's about 25 bucks as well. Getting harder to get. Lots of conspiracy theories of you know whenever there's an uh, you know shortage of any of these, are they are they siphoning it off for pappies, things of that nature. Yeah. So that's kind of fun to see all that. But those are kind of some of my low end go tos. I mean, one of my favorite of all time, um, which was in the mid range, was Elijah Craig 18, and that's from Heaven Hill. Mm-hmm. And fantastic bourbon, you know, I was picking it up for about $50 and $50 for an 18 year old bourbon. I mean, yeah. there's nothing bad about that, that, that equation, right. except that they decided that they were going to stop releasing it and they started releasing, you know, a 20 and now a 21, 22. And they're, so they're releasing older expressions of the bourbon. So obviously the 18 is, is being ported to that. But the bad thing is they, the price doubled. Overnight, wow. I've tried some of the new ones and they're not bad, but they start getting a little oaky to me. They get a little, a little overaged in my opinion. And then when you factor in the doubling in the price and even more in some cases, it just you know the the value ratio kind of diminishes for me. I mean, they're great bourbons, and once again, if you have the means, try it, have it. I think you know, the the more that you try at all ends of the spectrum, the better you're going to understand what you really like and you're going to be able to hone on something that really fits with your taste profile in your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when you start getting up to that high range, though, you know, the 80 to $90 range, you know, things like uh, a lot of the small roses, they're coming out now, actually just started releasing it there. Small batch limited edition, um, which is fantastic. Um, I was lucky enough to get a, a pre-release sample and it's 
probably the best bourbon I've tasted this year really? that's being released this year. Jim Rutledge, the master distiller for Rose, just did a masterful job. He's a really nice guy, too. He's humble. He's accessible. Um, and has done a great job reviving that brand and getting them back in the U.S. market. So that's that's a good find. That, But that's, you know, once again, the myth around that one is already getting to Pappy's proportions that if you get a bottle of that, you're going to be pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the, also at the high end and sort of hard to get is – one of my all-time favorite is um, George T. Stag, mm. which is a barrel-proof bourbon. Um, once again, released by Buffalo Trace. It's part of their yearly release, what's called the Antique Collection, which is a collection of four bourbons that are released once a year. And this bourbon is just, when you talk about rack-stacked and packed with flavor, um, it, it, it's got it in spades. It's, it's one that, you know, it's strong. I think I've got one that's, you know, 136 proof or so and a lot of people cut it with water to get to where they like but i just like pouring it in a glass and eat and just sipping on it slow and it's just you know it's just amazing i mean yeah. quite frankly it, it's hard to hard to explain it without tasting it and whatnot but it's a great one too and once again it's reaching mythical proportions as well and everyone's waiting you know following trucks for the deliveries and things of that nature which gets kind of comical <laughs> so if you get one you're lucky yeah. um and then you can always go in the secondary market, but you're going to pay a premium and you got to be a little educated to do that. And that's quote unquote technically not legal, I suppose. But mm. um, another great one to get. So, but there's stuff all along the line. I mean, people are releasing new things every day and yeah. it's just a really fun time. Yeah, yeah, it really is. A couple other um, bargain ones come to mind for, for, for me. Uh, the Buffalo Trace, just their, their straight ahead everyday Buffalo Trace, is, it's a great bargain. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, I, like, I like the 1792. Yeah, the Ridgemont Reserve. Yeah, yeah, I think no, that's great excellent. for the price. I think it's no, awesome. absolutely. And, you know, um, it's a high rye bourbon right there. Um, oh, is that right? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, your Maker's Mark, your Wellers, your Pappy, those are weeded. So, you know, they put more wheat than rye. You know, the wheat is really kind of the secondary grain in those, and has a little bit of softer, a little bit of a sweeter flavor. Whereas the rye, like the 1792s, uh, you know, things like Basil Hayden's, which is part of the small batch collection, Jim Beam, or even Four Roses that I was talking about, or Bullet, which is really popular, um, yeah. are higher rye recipes. So you're going to get more pepper, you're going to get more spice mm-hmm. on those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those are, you know, great foundationals for cocktails too, especially right. when you want a little bit of punch. So I love a great Manhattan. Yeah. That's, you know, got a rye bourbon in it, like a 1792. Oh, I had one the other day at um, Employees Only. Are you familiar with that bar? In I'm not. It, it's uh, kind of a famous one in the bartender world. It won Best Cocktail Bar at, at Tales of the Cocktail uh, war, a couple of years ago. And um, anyway, I, I just went in. And I, they're famous for making great cocktails, but not being overly, you know, mixology geeky about it. And I uh, it. so I went in and I just said, I just want something great made with whiskey. And he made me the most amazing Manhattan that I've ever had in my life. Nice. Uh, you know what he put in, in as secret ingredient? He put in a little tiny dash, you know, about the same amount of bitters. He used about mm-hmm. the same amount of uh, Gramonier. And it was fabulous. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was. Nice. Uh, uh, yeah, I had quite a few of those. <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, then, it's good that you remembered the special uh, secret ingredient. Yeah, yeah. After and then at, at one point I said, you know, um, I should try something else. This guy's an amazing bartender. You know, I said, let, let me try something else with whiskey. And he made me something else. And it, I went back to the Manhattan because it was just so incredible. I mean, if you can get a good one, it's, it, yeah, you're not going to want to stray too far from it. No, no, it's an amazing drink. And uh, we've talked about it before on our podcast. We had um, the guys from Via Vermouth on okay. on the show, which is a really great high-end vermouth made in um, 
in California. And uh, a lot of times the vermouth will just sit there in the speed rack for years, you know, and people, people you, you only use a dash because people don't like it because it tastes terrible because it's been sitting there so long and it's really supposed to be refrigerated and it's not and it doesn't last forever. So uh, when, you get a, when you get a good vermouth and a, and a good whiskey together, you can't go wrong. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I always find myself asking them to add a little bit more vermouth to it. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. As long as it's not, as you said, gone south. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that leads us towards cocktails, bourbon cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thought on that? I know you, as a enthusiast, you probably drink it neat all the time, as do I. <laughs> but um, we're a bartender show, so uh, it's actually... Um, you know, it, 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 bourbon's actually a good introduction for a lot of people into the whiskey world because, um, you know, sc- scotch is an acquired taste for sure. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, lower-end whiskeys are hard to drink, <laughs> even right. even mixed with, you know, even in a cocktail. But um, I think, you know, I think a, a nice bourbon cocktail is a good introdu- introduction for people that are scared, of, scared, for lack of a better word, of whiskey, you know. So, uh, do you have any um, any cocktails you'd like to tell us about, or any recipes, or? Sure, no, I, but you know, for, I totally agree. I think you know, it, bourbon with its sweeter profile and and some notes that people are very familiar with, you know, maple and vanilla and things like that, makes it very approachable. I mean, a Manhattan obviously is a great place to go. Um, some people tend to to like you know a, an old fashioned as as well. Um, you know, for me, I I do prefer simpler things. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not. You know, a, a true cocktail aficionado, to be honest, as you say, because I tend to drink stuff neat. And plus, the whole fact that I reason I got into it was I was trying to stay away from the sugar. Um, I actually got to go to there's a new whiskey house uh, restaurant opening up in St. Louis. So actually, be the first really whiskey forward establishment, if you can believe that, here in town. Mm. And um, they uh, had a cocktail sampling. They so I got invited, and they had. I think it was something like 26 different cocktails that they're considering putting on the bar. So myself and a, and a small group of others sat down and we got to sample all 26 and provide a detailed feedback. And once again, their their approach, obviously, as you said, was looking at how to bring people into the category right. when they're scared as hell. Right. <laughs> um, and so they had some really great stuff. So, you know, I, it's kind of interesting. A lot of times people are looking for something and it's simple, straightforward. Um, so like a horse's neck is, is, is great in my opinion. So throw some bourbon into a glass, add some ginger ale, put a couple drops of bitters in there uh, over ice. And to me, that's a fantastic drink because it packs a lot of, you know, kind of zest to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially if you use instead of like a ginger ale, you use like a ginger beer. So it's got a real good zip to it with the bitters mixed into it. Um, and that's a great drink because it gives you a lot of liquid volume and right. you can obviously back off the bourbon to taste and to, you know, however many you're going to have. So that's been one that I've had a lot of success giving to people to try to get them in. And, and I keep a bottle of a Buffalo Tracer in hand for just that, mm-hmm. for, for mixing. You know, a lot of people keep a thing of Jim Beam around or whatever. Um, I try to, you know, Beam's a, I mean, solid bourbon. Obviously, they didn't be, get successful for having Right. something that wasn't good but it's a little too earthy for me so a buffalo trace kind of that that entry level is a, is a great one for for that mixing i think it works really really well yeah so do that you know we've uh you know recently uh, added um 10 or so additional people to the blog who are writing now um went through a whole recruiting process and they're bringing a lot of different um cocktail ideas to to the site so i'm kind of leaning on them a little bit for, for some of their favorites right as well but um we also had a gentleman like who offered up said, "Hey, I'll make a, a a cocktail for you guys, like a signature cocktail." And I said, "Well, I want you to use something that most people don't use." So I said, "Antique Weller um, bourbon," and I said, "And I want it to be something that people can make at home and make it accessible." So created something that we're you know just calling the Bourbon Jam, and it's straightforward um, bourbon, honey, 
grape jam mm-hmm. and lemon juice and yeah. shaking it up and straining it out and pouring it over ice and topping it off with a little soda. And it's almost got a punch profile to it, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. stopped short of being that overly cloying sweetness to it. Um, very refreshing, very accessible. So that's that's one that I kind of like it because it's not, once again, it's not overly sweet um, and I could still taste all the ingredients. But probably if I look over the last 12 months or so, the one drink recipe that, because I get a lot submitted to me from the bourbon, um, the oh, brands themselves, right, right. To, to try out. And the one, though, that I think really surprised me um, was this recipe from Wild Turkey. Called, they call it Liberty. It was for the 4th of July. Okay. And, you know, it was basically taking, uh, they were pushing the American honey, which is their bourbon honey liqueur. Yeah. Um, which, interesting enough, has been around for decades, but everybody thinks it just came out to really? the market. Oh. Um, they, yeah, they, they, <laughs> had made it, I think it was back in the 70s, um, and then they shelved it, so they reformulated a little bit to make it a little more sweeter, a little sweeter, and then they rebottled it in kind of a sexy bottle, and now they're going after sort of the uh, the shot crowd at the bars, you know, playing yeah. sports, you know, that kind of stuff. But you take that, take wild turkey, you know, um, regular, which whichever proof you like, uh, iced tea, mm-hmm. lemonade, and then a bunch of fresh basil. Mm. And put it together and serve it over ice. And we made a picture of that. And I think in about an hour or so, it was gone. Um, and it was just phenomenal. And, you know, not being a mixologist type of guy, I, I never thought, I mean, this will be, you know, second nature to you guys. I never thought about putting basil in a drink. Yeah. Um, but now I'm a basil junkie. It's great. If, and, if you, you know, cilantro is another basil one. In it, and yeah. I'm just like, oh my God, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Cilantro is another one. It's, you wouldn't, okay. you'd be surprised, but it's great in drinks. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's cool. So I like, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a guy here in St. Louis who was in the um, Four Roses cocktail competition. He's a, a fairly new bartender. Um, and he entered and he got entered and he went down. He was one of the 10 finals. I think he t- took third and he made a drink and was watching to make it, but not watching it. So I didn't see everything going in. And once again, there was some basil and I immediately picked up on it. I was like, Oh, I like it just cause of that. <laughs> but you know, so that's pretty good. But I, I take it in, you know, I don't drink a lot of them, but, uh, I'm always willing to try them cause I think it's really fun how people are bringing stuff together and, uh, whiskey sours as well. Yeah. Yeah. And especially really fresh ones that are actually sour and not sweet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that gets my attention. I had one the other night when I did that tasting. They made they brought one out and I was like, oh, whiskey sour. Yeah. yeah. And I took it and I was like, I mean, my mouth just puckered up and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. You know, so as long as you're not making it with that sour mix out of the soda gun, you know, oh, if you're really no. using real lemon juice and a, and a exactly. simple syrup, it's great, yeah. great drink. No, no, it's fantastic. And, you know, and they could have punched up with a stronger, you know, I, 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 I like to see a, a more stout bourbon put in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because they just used Jim Beam in it, and uh, but I think something with a little bit more rye and that could have been kind of interesting. At least it would have fit my, you know, my preference. But something like that, and I think just you know, as you, as you, I'm sure that you you attest to, is to, make them fresh. Don't be afraid to experiment and give it a shot. Um, you know, be careful. You know, some of the more traditional ones are going to be a little more whiskey forward, mm-hmm. so you might have to start with something a little more creative. Um, but there's a lot, lot to enjoy, and I think that's just once again part of the journey. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting with cocktails, too. Um, Certain brands will work better in certain drinks. And, you know, that's not something that all bartenders give a lot of thought to. You know, you have usually you have your well, you have your call and you have your premium, you know, but it's, um, you know, certain brands will work better in certain cocktails for sure. You know, and that's something that I've uh, been exploring lately and and, uh, putting more thought into, uh, especially as I um, meet all these interesting distillers and people that are making these products and are so passionate about them, you know, 
Do you want to tell everybody? Uh, so we talked about bourbonbanter.com is your blog, and uh, you have uh, Twitter and Facebook things you want to tell people about? Sure, absolutely. Um, so bourbonbanter.com is the website. Um, we're on Twitter, um, at, and our handle is bourbonbanter as well. Um, we're also on Facebook, so facebook.com slash bourbonbanter. We were lucky to keep everything consistent. We're on Instagram. We're on Pinterest. We're on Google+. Plus. We're, we're everywhere. All right. Our, you know, our mission is to spread the bourbon gospel, so we've got to be everywhere that there's people. Drop us a note. You've got questions. We can answer you. Uh, we even have a phone number on the site, and I get calls all the time for people looking and asking questions. And if I don't know, um, I'll do what I can to find somebody that knows because there's a lot of people out there that are way smarter than me. <laughs> um, and those are the people that I like to make friends with because, you know, as I said, we're all in it together. And every person that falls in love with bourbon is another person, you know, spreading, spreading the gospel, so to speak. Great, great. Well, thanks again, Patrick. We really appreciate it. All right, I appreciate it. Take care. All right, cool. I found that very informative myself. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, so remember, you can find us on the web at bartenderjourney.weebly.com. And uh, check out liquor.com, and then you can click on the top uh, menu bar, and it says Drinkwire there. And you can find posts from Patrick Garrett there, as well as uh, you can find posts from us. It's a good website, liquor.com. Very informative and entertaining. So check that out, guys. And uh, don't forget, you can reach me at vince.bartender at gmail.com and on Twitter at barkeeptips. And I want to thank the people that have uh, written in recently. Jaime, who we uh, interviewed one time, sent us a bunch of pictures, and I've been meaning to put those up on our blog on the the Weebly site. So uh, I'll try to get to that. And uh, we got a couple of great emails from Germany, from bartenders in Germany. So that was really interesting to read. Cheers to you guys for writing in. And uh, anybody else who wants to write in, tell us your story, talk about uh, maybe getting on the show and doing an interview, that would be very cool. And on the subject of interviews, just to let you know what's coming up in the future, I have a few that I'm trying to, I'm hoping they all work out. Uh, One with a beer expert, so I want to do a show in the near future called Beer Knowledge for Bartenders, and uh, we'll talk about all the different classifications of beer and uh, proper way to store it and serve it. So uh, I think that's another educational segment that would be great. So uh, again, it's vince.bartender at gmail.com is my email. And um, oh, on our website, bartenderjourney.weebly.com, check out our tip cup page. We could really use your support um, to keep the show going. And you can contribute uh, whatever you like through PayPal there. And uh, it really helps us to, to keep the show going. We appreciate any support you can give. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Cheers. We'll see you next week.